We often just a second. We often read the Bible for comfort, for reassurance, uh, maybe to to settle our hearts. But if we read the Gospels thoughtfully, slowly, meditatively, it can have uh, the opposite effect. We read passages like this and we maybe feel the seats underneath us getting a little warm. The, the parables particularly are often places where sentimental hallmark versions of Jesus go to die. Though, as we saw last week, Jesus comes offering forgiveness that is total, that is indiscriminate. But sometimes we come across these somewhat cryptic, almost threatening parts of his teaching that leave us at least, you know, scratching our heads or maybe a little worried, a little concerned. Sometimes I read the Gospels and I think, hey, Jesus, take it easy. We read, for instance, about this supposedly unpardonable sin last week, this warning about the sin against the Holy Spirit. And then here Jesus says that he speaks to people in parables so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Say that again? Or second thought, don't, because that's not what I read the Bible for. I read the Gospels for reassurance, not warning, not to be unsettled. But this is a statement that hangs over the entirety of chapter 4, because there are four parables here, and this is the first of four of what we call the kingdom parables in Mark's gospel and in the other gospels as well. As well, The kingdom, in its most simple definition, is the rule and the reign of God. And in one sense, the kingdom is everywhere. King David prays in the book of Chronicles, Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and on earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom and you are exalted as head over all, over everything. But in another sense, the kingdom for those of us on earth is not fully experienced. And we pray each and every week, week, your kingdom come, your kingdom come forth, proliferate on earth as it is in heaven. That there's a difference in experience of the kingdom in heaven and on earth at this moment we live as Richard prayed in this liminal space. That God's kingdom and the kingdom of evil and sadness are still at war and they interpenetrate one another. Well, how does then God's kingdom come? 
What are we praying for when we pray your kingdom come? How does it grow and expand in our experience? Well, it comes and expands and grows in radically different ways than the kingdoms that we're used to. Because the kingdoms that we're used to come by force. They come by coercion. They come by being powerful and being up and being mighty and being higher than others. Jesus' kingdom comes by hearing, by listening, by seeing, and by going down, being rooted in individual lives and in individual communities. When Alexander the Great, when Genghis Khan, when Julius Caesar, when their kingdoms came to town, everyone knew it. It was obvious. It was loud because they came in and they broke stuff and they killed people. They used a sword rather than a seed. It was very loud. It was very obvious. You couldn't miss it. And you bowed in subjection to their kingdom or you were dead. Overwhelming force, coercive, straight line power. This is how worldly kingdoms work. This is how they proliferate. Jesus' kingdom grows organically. It grows like a seed. It grows down. Only most of his hearers, even his disciples, they didn't want a seed. They wanted a sword, right? They wanted the Romans thrown out. They wanted straight-line coercive power from God on high. But what does Jesus talk about? A king who will be tortured and killed. A kingdom where you you find your life by laying it down for others. A kingdom where the first are the last. And this would have sounded just as ludicrous then as it does now. But Mark is telling us that our, our eyes and our ears often deceive us. That what looks, what sounds impressive doesn't always last. That Kingdoms can be Potemkin villages, and kings, emperors, can have no clothes. And conversely, seeds don't look like very much. But over time, they can completely transform their environment. Now, we need to shift gears just slightly because while the seed imagery is present, it's certainly talked about by Jesus. This parable isn't primarily about seeds. And though this parable has been traditionally called the parable of the sower, Jesus isn't really talking about the sower either. He's talking about the soils, the kind of soils that seeds either germinate and grow in or that they die in. And he's causing us to ask, what kind of soil does the seed of the kingdom take root in? Or better yet, what kind of person, what kind of community can the seed be planted in? Mark tells us that large crowds are following him. People are coming to him from every town after town. Even though he's telling them a very pessimistic parable, what he's saying is that most of you don't get it. I've got your attention. That's the easy part. But there's 
four types of listeners and only one of them really hears. Only one really sees. These seeds are sown along the path and the rocks and the thorns and then the good soil. Or maybe we could say in hard hearts or shallow hearts or divided hearts and then finally open hearts. And I think we can look at these quickly in order. And as I said, it won't be easy. We might feel our seats getting a little bit warm underneath us. We might feel discomfort before we are comforted. The first of these soils, which turns out not to be much of a soil at all, are the seeds that fell upon the path. Now, some of you have been to Israel, and you'll know even today that uh, it's a very hot place. It's a very dry place. And the paths that people walk on, maybe they're paved now, but in those days they were just dirt and yet extremely hard. They were packed very hard. And seeds can't grow. You can't grow a garden on a path, not only because people walk on them, but because the ground itself is so compacted that the seeds can't grow, they can't take root. And what are paths for? Paths are meant to keep people moving, to keep people on moving from one engagement to another. And people on paths are determined to get somewhere, to the next town, the next meeting, the next meal, the next event. Now in our world, we may not be walking anywhere. We may not be going much of anywhere at all right now. But even if we're not going anywhere physically, our hearts, our minds can be extremely busy paths. We can be extremely distracted even when we're sitting in one particular place. We're always on our way to someone else, to something else, even if we're not leaving the house. And the trouble with this, of course, is that it's not very meditative. We don't notice things we should. We're not very observant when we're always on the move because we're always distracted. And that makes very difficult soil if what is being planted or attempted to plant is seeds that grow slowly, that grow organically. And so in our world, in our day, it's possible possible to be in high contact with the truth and yet not changed by it. It's possible to be those that Isaiah talks about, that Jesus quoted, that are ever hearing, but never understanding. A seed, in order to grow, it needs soil that is fit for that seed, but it also needs rain. It needs time. It needs patience. It needs cultivation to grow and to harvest. And if we're always on the move, If we're always going from one place to the next, we don't take the time to cultivate what God has planted or is attempting to plant in our lives. Well, secondly, there's shallow hearts. And these are the seeds that are planted in rocky soil. And these are people that show initial joy, initial exuberance, but 
the heat of the sun and trials or difficulty comes, and we simply don't have the root system in order to survive. During uh, quarantine and really starting in January, I started um, relearning Spanish. I had taken Spanish uh, for two years in college and did a, a short immersion course in Costa Rica. And I was by no means fluent, but I could sort of get around in a Spanish-speaking country. But then I came home, graduated college, I got a job, I had a family, and I just sort of shelved my Spanish learning and everything that I had learned up to that point. Well, language and spirituality are similar in that when you press pause, your facility doesn't just pause, it doesn't just flatline. Our capacity for language doesn't isn't just static, but it begins to regress and it dies off. And most things worth learning are like that. Most things worth learning or doing also have that moment or a series of moments where we make a decision whether or not to continue to push through that innate inertia to find that greater joy, that deeper capacity of being able to do something well. Well, this moment, this moment of decision, like it or not, it reveals our real interests. It reveals our real commitment to the project. We may have liked the initial joy or we may have liked the idea of being competent at something, but we didn't so much like the practice. We didn't so much want to bear the cost. And Jesus is leading us to ask whether we came to him for the purpose of giving our lives away for the healing of the world, or did we come to him for him to do something for us? Are we, I guess we should ask, could ask a different way, are we entering into Jesus' kingdom, or are we asking Jesus to enter into ours? Is Jesus more of a service provider, or is he a king of a kingdom that we choose to inhabit? Well, then he talks about seed in the thorns, or what I would call the divided heart. This is the person who sees or who hears and then receives, but the growth of the kingdom is choked out by life. It's killed off by other lives. The practice of our lives don't match our profession. How we, how we do life, how we live life, doesn't match what we say we believe. And so maybe we commit to God's authority in our lives, but we have a lot of fine print. There's a lot of disclosure agreements for God to read. We say we give our life to God. We have that initial conversion experience, but we hold on to our comfort. We hold on to our standard of living. That's not negotiable, God. We hold on to our privacy. We hold on to our bitterness. We hold on to our regret. We hold on to our agenda. We're not giving up on the faith, but we're not moving forward either. 
We're not cultivating growth. We're not cultivating intimacy. And I suspect that of all of the three seeds that we've talked about so far, that this one, the divided heart, the seed that is trying to grow in rocky places is probably where most of us are this morning. But maybe for slightly different reasons, or actually very dramatically, as it turns out, different reasons. Because some of us may find our life in God choked because we just like what we like, and Jesus can't have it. We hold on to conflicting loves, loves that move us away from God and his kingdom. That's one version of that. But others, while functionally we're in the same situation, our challenge isn't over disobedience, but it's it's just doubt. It's just skepticism that comes from doing life in a an environment that is very different than the life lived in the days that Jesus was teaching, in the questions that we have to address in our culture, in the, the fact that we are reading our Bibles. Do you see the difference? You see, the first is the realm. That is, those who say, we just like what we like and Jesus can't have it. That's the realm of the ever seen but never perceiving. And in the context of Jesus's parable, this is the plight of the scribes and the Pharisees. They use their religiosity to avoid a personal encounter with God. They use their religiosity to avoid change. Now, maybe that is you, and I don't want you to not think about that because it's probably all of us at a certain time in our lives But I know you, and I know myself, and I suspect that that's not our typical willful intent. Most of our divided hearts are not the result of a deliberate and decided disobedience, but they're the result of doubt. Jesus, it seems in this parable and throughout the Gospels, He is deeply antagonistic towards people whose religion is used to mask a deep rebellion. But he's deeply tender, friends, towards those who doubt, towards the divisions in our heart that are present, not because of disobedience, but because we are wrestling with questions of deep significance. You see, some some of the coldest, hardest, meanest people I've ever met have been in church leadership. They know more about the Bible than I ever will. But they use the Bible to resist Jesus. They use the Bible to get leverage over God and over others. In contrast, German writer and commentator Helmick Thielicky, he says, a salty pagan full of the juices of life is a hundred times dearer to God and far more attractive to others than a scribe who knows his Bible, in whom none of this results in repentance, action, and above all, death of the self. 
a terrible curse hangs over the know-it-all who does nothing, and also over the theologian who is only a theologian. That's painful. That's discomforting. And I'm sure it sounds even more uh, burly in German. But here's the thing. I believe that you can be a skeptic. You can be a very salty pagan and still be in the last category, what we're about to talk about, the good soil. You can be a salty pagan who has a tender heart, who has an open heart, who maybe hasn't taken that step of commitment because you're still confused, you're still divided, you still have doubt that has kept you on one side of the cross. Those with the open heart, Jesus teaches us here, how do we take that step? How do we develop an open heart? Those with the open heart are those who see and perceive, who hear and understand. You might be wrestling with doubt right now because you understand. You might be wrestling with doubt because you recognize how radically cosmic the claims of Jesus are. The sin of the Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that we talked about in chapter 3 or that we referenced in chapter 3 and didn't talk about. It isn't some moral failure. And it's not failing to believe strongly enough. The sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is hardened opposition to the movement of the Holy Spirit that is showing up in the person of Jesus. People with open hearts aren't open, don't have open hearts because they're smarter or because they're more spiritual or because they're trying harder. It's merely because they have willfully opened themselves up to the seed, to the word, which is Jesus. We prayed the key, I believe, this morning in Psalm 119. The constant refrain in that very long psalm is, God, give me understanding. The psalmist is begging God, give me understanding. Or in other words, open my heart to the word. Open my heart to the gospel. That's the prayer that undermines blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That's the prayer that unseats hardened opposition that we see in the scribes and the Pharisees and, oh, by the way, oftentimes in ourselves. The person who is begging God for understanding does not need to worry about the unpardonable sin. And what it also tells us is that the good soil is not good by nature, but good by grace. The good soil is soil where Jesus's cross is planted, where Jesus's cross is cultivated, where we look away from the power of worldly kingdoms and we see 
the subtle, organic, sometimes intangible and invisible kingdom of Jesus. And we say, give me more of that. That's what I want. But we have to have hearts where we want the cross to be planted, where we want to be resurrected. And then we cultivate that. We ask God to plant it, and then we ask him to help us cultivate more of that. So would you pray with me as we end our time that Jesus's cross and his resurrection would be planted in each of us and cultivated in our individual hearts as well as in the heart of in-town church. Let's pray. Father God, would you give us tender hearts, hearts that are soft to your word, hearts that are open to your correction, hearts that are open to the heat of the gospel that sometimes makes our situation feel a little bit worse before things get better. And I pray that we would envision things getting better, not by conquering, not even by our circumstances changing immediately, but that we would see things getting better in terms of your word taking root in our lives, that we would become more stable, independent of our consequences, and that we would delight in seeing your kingdom take root in us and in our church that we love. And would you make us, therefore, a church that is tender to the needs of others, that is open to learning, that is open to changing, that is open to seeing and perceiving the alienation in our city that you want to to fix so badly and that you want to do through us. So would you open our hearts to do just that? Make us receptive to your word and to your peace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we're going to come to the table. And as we do, we're going to prepare our hearts. And I invite you to use this time to also to inspect your lives, to inspect your hearts. Because as we confess what we believe, we are meant to ask but this is this really what I believe? Is this how I live? And so we confess our faith. We do so not lightly, not just because it's printed, not just out of repetition, but we do so reflectively. And so I ask you, why are you called a Christian? Because by faith, I am a member of Christ. And so I share in his anointing. I am anointed to confess his name, to present myself to him as a living sacrifice of thanks, to strive with a free conscience against sin and the devil in this life, and afterward to reign with Christ over all creation for eternity. Thank you. As we come to this table we reflect upon the fact that God gives grace through means that aren't impressive. They don't look like very much, but we pray that they open up a world of grace inside of us and inside our church. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread 
And after giving thanks, he broke the bread. And he said, this is my body. It is given for you. Eat this all in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Drink this all in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread or you drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And therefore, for many centuries, Christians have proclaimed the mystery of the faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Christ, our Passover, he is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. These are the gifts of God and therefore, and for the people of God. So feed on him in your hearts by faith and with great thanksgiving. I'll give you just a few moments uh, to take communion and do so at your own in your own way and at your own speed. And then we'll come back in just a moment and sing our closing songs.